Good evening, everybody. I'm Liz Kirkwood, the executive director of Flow. I, I'm just so thrilled uh, to see all of you in person. It's just, it's really, really terrific. Um, founded 11 years ago by Jim Olson and fellow water warriors, including many of you here tonight, our shared mission at Flow is to ensure the waters of the Great Lakes are healthy, public, and protected for all. Flow is a leading voice for the public to advocate robust and equitable policies to protect water for all. We advance sound policy and empower people to share in this work because it takes all of us to defend these cherished waters for the common good, and collaboration is key. The heart of Flow's work is elevating public trust law. We empower citizens to hold governments accountable for protecting public water resources from one generation to the next. Together, we battle the dangerous Line 5 oil pipelines threatening the Great Lakes, fight for stronger drinking and groundwater protections, and work with urgency to keep our water in public hands and not in plastic bottles for sale. Doing this work day in and day out gives me hope because water unites us. Water is in our DNA and water defines everything in our past, present, and future. Despite bitter political polarization, our community's concern to safeguard our Great Lakes is a deeply shared value to bridge the political divide, and we instinctively know that our waters are part of our common heritage to enjoy and protect and to pass on. Our water work goes hand in hand with the climate crisis. As stewards of some 20% of the planet's fresh surface water, those number, that number never ceases to astound me, we cannot take the Great Lakes for granted. Replenishing and healing every arc of our water cycle is critical to addressing climate change impacts of flooding, drought, severe and unprecedented storms. And your support and involvement has helped to supercharge our shared efforts to keep water public and protected through innovative, holistic, and systemic solutions. So on behalf of Flow's staff and board, I thank you. And if you're, not, if you're new to Flow, please check us out online at forloveofwater.org. Now it is time to hear from two Great Lakes thinkers and authors at this fantastic National Writers Series event. And I just want to say how incredibly fortunate we are at Flow to have such talented staff members like Dave Dempsey, our senior policy advisor, to help shape lasting policies to protect human health and the environment. Thank you for all you do, Dave. And Jerry Dennis, I want to thank you for all of your amazing writings and stories. The Living Great Lakes was the first book I read when I came to the Great Lakes over a decade ago, and I cherish your work. Both Jerry and Dave have shared and continue to share incredible wisdom about our collective and individual roles in the future of the Great Lakes. My deep appreciation to you both. And thank you to everyone here tonight and online for joining us. I'd like to echo um Liz's sentiments um, to the hundredth degree. Um, and I want to just quickly introduce Sherry and Jerry. Um, our guest host tonight is Sherry McWhorter, a longtime environmental journalist with more than 20 years of experience, including 16 plus years in Michigan. She lives in Traverse City where she works as a climate and energy journalist for MLive. 
If you haven't checked them out, you really should. They're doing great work. By the way, MLive is eight physical newspapers across the state. I learned that tonight. Um, oh, wait, you're Jer Jerry. Yeah, Jerry. I've known Jerry Dennis a long time since he published um, It's Raining Frogs and Fishes. Um, Ann went out, we went out to his house and met he and Gail and she and interviewed him for an article. And I'm a longtime fan, admirer of his work, his ethic, um, and the way he moves through the world. And um, thank you, Jerry, for being here tonight. He's, he's grew up here and he's lived most of his life as an independent writer since 1986, which is no small feat. He's published 11 books, most of them illustrated by the incredibly, incredibly gifted Glenn Wolf, who I know is in the audience. Glenn, please take a bow, wherever you are. There he is, back, way back there. Um, you can meet Glenn in the lobby and see his work after this event. Um, please, please take advantage of that. Jer Jerry's essays, poems, and short fiction have appeared in more than 100 publications, including the New York Times, Audubon, and the Smithsonian and his awards include the Michigan Author of the Year Award and the Great Lakes Culture Award from MSU. He teaches creative nonfiction and a sense of place at University of Michigan's Bear River Writers Conference, and he and his wife, Gail, live on Old Mission Peninsula, close to the lake. Nice job. Thank you. Yeah, you're good. Um, Dave Dempsey has helped shape conservation and Great Lakes policy for 30 years. He's the author and co-author of nine books, including the definitive biography of former, of the late Governor William Milliken, who did so much for Michigan's environment, along with Helen. Uh, he has served more than 35 years in um, pushing and promoting environmental policy. He's worked for the Michigan Environmental Council, the International Joint Commission, and the Great Lakes Fishery Commission. In 2009, David was awarded the annual Michigan Author Award by the Michigan Center for the Book, the Michigan Library Association, and the Sleeping Bear Press. He is currently, as Liz just said, a senior policy advisor for Flow. Um, we are lucky to have him here in Traverse City. We're glad he moved from Minnesota. Please welcome all three to the stage. Thanks. Thanks very much, everyone, for joining us tonight. And um, has asked me to remove my hat so it would be easier to see my face. So. To get started, let's talk about these latest books of essays that are so lovely. Um, Jerry's book, Up North in Michigan. Uh, to me, it read like a, a love letter to this part of the Great Lakes, to the region, to the water. Um, every single essay re uh, resonated with me. I really liked the one about August and trying to get as much out of summer as you can. A little timely. So could you please tell everybody how you came to put this book together? Well, I guess in a way, i have been working on it since the very beginning of my writing career. The first piece that I did for publication was in 1982, shortly after I got out of college, um, for Travers Magazine, the, the fledgling Travers Magazine. My sister-in-law, Karen Roth, was the office manager. 
and um, the editorial staff was saying that they should get somebody to write a, an essay about fly fishing on the Boardman River. And Karen said, well, I know just the person. Because she knew I had studied English in college and wanted to be a writer. What she didn't know is that I thought I was a fiction writer and a poet. And so when I got the call from Jeff Smith and asked me if I wanted to tackle this, I wasn't really sure I, I could. I didn't really know how. I'd never worked in, with nonfiction, except in you know school reports and things. And, but I said, yes, I'll do it. And he said, we can pay you $60. And I said, oh, I'll definitely do it. <laughs> that, that was our food budget for a week. And, and I jumped into it, and I had so much fun. It was so rewarding in every sense to, to write about this place that I, I loved so much and that I had grown up with. And you know, not just the sport of fly fishing, but the river itself, and to try to describe what this place is like and make a reader understand my feelings for it, I was hooked. I never looked back. Have you been writing these essays all the years along, or did you put it together as recollections? It was mostly pieces I had done over the years. Then I brought them together and revised them and up upgraded and updated them and, and made them sort of link you know, a little more. Excellent. Dave's new book, Half Wild, is uh, another charming collection of essays about people, pets, and uh, his observations of seeing environmental policy shaped um, as he stood witness and, and helped uh, influence that. Uh, I really liked the chapter on uh, the fight over flowers. Uh, picking the, the state wildflower, um, perhaps because here recently there's an effort to pick a state grain. Uh, I don't know if you'd heard that. Oh, yeah, uh, wanting to make wild rice, the Michigan state grain. So, <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, why did you design, decide to put you know, this collection together about people and, and dogs and right. environmental policy? Well, first I want to say, if I seem nervous, it's because I'm up on the same stage with Jerry Dennis, who's one of my heroes, and one of Michigan's most hard-hitting investigative or environmental reporters. So I don't know if any of you know, but uh, Jerry used to be very active here in Traverse City at the Record Eagle and did a lot of great reporting. Uh, the question you asked may be a mystery. Yeah, yeah. Does, does PFAS ring a bell? <laughs> yeah. It does, All right. unfortunately. Um, your question is about a book most people here don't even know about, I think. It's coming out uh, officially next week. It's called Half Wild, and the subtitle is People, Dogs, and the Environment. Somebody already asked me, where, did, what did dogs, where do dogs come in? And I said, where does the environment come in? I like dogs a lot more than you know, <laughs> environmental policy, for sure. Um, they are part of the environment. Well, the, essay, the essays are mostly designed to talk about the a false dichotomy that we sometimes get into about uh, the wild versus the non-wild, or the wild versus the civilized. And these essays are about efforts to kind of uh, look at things like wilderness, for example, and say we're going to set aside a piece of what the wild forever. Well, there is no piece of the wild that's left that's untouched by human beings. And so it's, the book is designed to kind of uh, get us to think a little differently about the boundary between the wild and the and the so-called civilized. Uh, most of the essays are about 
everything from reintroducing Szechuan pheasants to uh, Michigan and how that sputtered out to uh, um, stories about my work that on garbage policy that earned me the nickname Dave Dumpsite. I've had some nicknames too, but none quite that clever. <laughs> so, uh, since they invited me to be the guest host here tonight, they've been sending me your books. You are prolific writers. Um, and you've been both writing about the Great Lakes for two decades. Um, so I'm gonna ask a broad question to both of you really. How have the concerns that you've had for the Great Lakes changed since you've started writing about them? Well, I'm not sure they have. Um, you know, we've made some progress, but many of the, the things that um, really, really were worrying me in the 1980s are still worrisome. One of the first stories I did about the Great Lakes was um, for Audubon Activist magazine um, in 1988, I believe. And it was in response to a book that had just come out that was one of the first books about climate change. And, and it presented computer models that projected huge changes to the Great Lakes region. And that was all new to me. I, you know, I'd been reading a little about climate change, but that was the first time I started thinking that we were in for some big changes because of warming temperatures. We're still dealing with that. That's getting more urgent all the time. Invasive species, oil spills, I, I wrote about all those things and they're, they're still of major concern. Interestingly, and just as an aside, all the time that I was working on those things and all the time I worked on the Living Great Lakes, which I spent four years on, it was published in 2003, I had never heard of Line 5. And nowhere in my research did that pop onto my radar. If it had, I'd have jumped right on it because it, even the 20 years ago it was evident that this was a mistake. This was an aging oil, oil pipeline that was potentially going to be devastating to the Great Lakes. So I have to say in answer to your question, not a lot has changed. I'm still concerned about the same things and still writing about many of the same things. Well, there are issues that I didn't know about when I started in this field 40 years ago. Uh, invasive species were not on my mind, even though the sea lamprey had been here for, at that time, 60, 60 years. It wasn't a big deal to me. But I recall back in uh, 1988 when we first heard about them, it was when the water intake for the city of Monroe got clogged by all these zebra mussels. So that was, that was relatively new at the time. Um, and we never heard of microplastics 40 years ago. There are more threats emerging before we even address successfully the old threats, and that's a little bit overwhelming to people. But, um, you know, I do feel that there's a, a Great Lakes ethic in Michigan that is unlike that of any other state. It should be different because we're the only state that's entirely in the basin. You look at Indiana, they've got 40 miles of Great Lakes shoreline and maybe two counties that are related to the Great Lakes and so on with the other states. So it's, it's really up to us. And I, I think over the years I've become more and more convinced that um, Michiganders are up to the challenge of protecting the Great Lakes. When the chips are down, they'll be there. And speaking of climate change, 
there are a lot of thirsty Western states out there. Arizona, I don't know if everyone's heard this, but they're actually studying the feasibility of building a pipeline to the Mississippi River for water. And I'm wondering how real that kind of a threat might be to the Great Lakes um, and our, our Great Lakes waters, or if the Great Lakes Compact will be there to prevent that forever. Well, a couple of things I want to say. That's just the main issue of Great Lakes for Sale that I wrote. Um, we've been, again, spending the last, thank you, the last 40 years trying to defend against diversions. When I first got into the field, we were worried about the Ogallala Aquifer in the Sunbelt states drying up and perhaps Great Lakes water being shipped there. Um, and the compact, that's the eight-state agreement that was signed in 2008 that commits the Great Lakes states to banning most diversions, is there. It's an effective, useful tool. But we are seeing in the last couple of years more talk, at least, about um, the Great Lakes as a source or an answer to the West's um, water needs. There's a commentator in Idaho who talked about Lake Michigan being borrowed for their drought, and there have been uh, other stories about that in the last couple of years. From an engineering point of view, it's very expensive. Water is very heavy. In fact, I was just seeing tonight that uh, the average household uses 1.3 tons of water a day, so that's a lot, of, a lot of water, but also a lot of weight. And it's very difficult to ship something so heavy so far and uphill, actually, if you're going to go all the way to uh, the west. Um, but we've learned from a history of water policy at the federal level, and that, well, a great book about this is Cadillac Desert, where it was basically we spent billions of U.S. taxpayer dollars to bring water to where it wasn't, where people want it. And I think there's always a chance that that could happen in the long term to the Great Lakes. The bigger threat right now is that we are commodifying the Great Lakes. We're taking Great Lakes Basin water, putting it in bottles, selling it wherever we want to, and I think that's a, a more imminent threat. Would you like to give the crowd an update on line five in the tunnel and your position on that? Well, you know, I'm speaking, I work for Flo, and Flo has been a leader in the fight to uh, hold Enbridge accountable for its past bad stewardship and its, I think, chutzpah to try to defend shipping 23 million gallons of petroleum product through the straits. They have been successful in tying this up in court. Uh, to her credit, Governor Whitmer and Attorney General Nessel have done their best to hold uh, Enbridge accountable. The governor uh, has, in a sense, or essentially revoked the easement that the state granted Enbridge back in 1953 to use the straits as their conduit. Um, I guess the update would be, I think it's gonna drag on the courts for more years, and it's unfortunately, Every day that that pipeline is operating is a risk to our Great Lakes. As a general update for everyone, the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers has opened a public comment period at this point to help them scope what issues they should be reviewing as they look at the tunnel plan. And um, how about you, Jerry? What do you think about Line 5? You said you'd never heard of it when you, you wrote your first Great Lakes book. What have you learned now, and what's your position now? Well, I'm 
like so many people, I'm just terrified of the potential consequences. And it doesn't help that Enbridge has a very dismal record of handling oil spills. I don't know the exact number, 250 spills they've had in on line, from line five alone. And many of them are small, but some are large. The one in, I'll get to the biggest one, but the one in, in Crystal Falls area was I think 150,000 gallons, and it caught fire and burned a big chunk of forest. Um, the big one, of course, was in the tributary of the Kalamazoo River that went 16 hours without 17 hours from the moment the pipe ruptured until Rembridge turned it off. My understanding was that in the, in the offices or the, the center where the lights are all, are all flashing red, they thought it was an electrical problem. They didn't stop to think that actually we have a ruptured pipeline that's gushing the worst heavy crude into the, that black tar sands sands stuff from Alberta into the Kalamazoo River water system. Um, ten years later, I went down there and could still find globs of it on the bottom of the river. So I, I hate to say it, but I just am not confident that we can believe their messaging. And they're very actively um, sending out the word that this is a, a good thing and it's creating jobs, it brings revenue to Michigan. And that's true in a lot smaller numbers than they are claiming, but um, the potential for disaster is just too great, and I just don't think we should take that risk. More on new threats. Um, we have some emerging contaminants here in the Great Lakes. We've discovered that here in Traverse City. Um, there's a whole family of chemicals out there called PFAS and they're being discovered in more and more places. Here in Michigan, we're looking for it more often than other places in the country. Now we're learning that it even falls from the sky in the rain. And there are fish advisories, consumption advisories for certain types of fish that come out of the Great Lakes. Um, what do we do about these types of emerging contaminants like PFAS? What, what kind of information should the public know? What kinds of accountability should they be calling for? Well, I don't want to get too much into policy because it puts people to sleep, but I do think we need to stop responding to chemicals and start preventing their introduction into commerce before we know their, their full consequences. Um, we've had, when it comes to fire retardants, for example, PBB was something that I knew about in high school that was a, a disaster in the state that was followed by something called PBDEs, which are flame retardants, which also have problems, and they were banned. We just go on and on with these chemicals. We have no chemical policy at the federal level. So we end up spending billions of taxpayers' dollars and exposing people to health risks to clean them up when it's really not the public's responsibility. So I would, I would just say that we need to do much more in the way of prevention than we have to do for cleanup these days. Now, the Great Lakes are beautiful. They're breathtaking, vast. Uh, some of the most impressive natural places in the continent. Um, so as climate change accelerates, and we work to keep Western states from piping Great Lakes water out west, there may be a lot of people who decide to move here. 
how should we plan for that? <laughs> uh, we need to put up a wall. Who can blame people? Who can blame them? I, I have been, I guess, promoting the Great Lakes for more than 20 years without really intending to bring people here, although I've been told that it has been one consequence in small numbers. Um, my point of view is that if people who come here come because they appreciate the natural resources and the water especially and the land as well, then they're more likely to want to defend it. And we can use all the defenders we can get. Um, as long as it's sensible, as long as we use good common sense in, in how we grow and we limit sprawl, urban sprawl, and we um, protect our dunes and don't really allow any more building on fragile, shifting sand dunes, which nobody should have done in the first place, and a lot of homeowners are regretting it as the water levels, when the water levels are up, they suffer for it. Um, and educate, you know, get our kids out there, get them on the water and on the beaches, get them involved and get them to understand what an amazing and rare thing this is and how fragile it is. Um, I think those are all good starting points at least. I don't have ideas. I have worries, though. I mean, I th how can we accommodate another million or two million people in the next 50 years in this state? Um, I, I'd like to think we're going to plan ahead and accommodate them in a way that's environmentally sensible, but I don't see that awareness right now at the policy level. So it's, it's a big unanswered question. All right. Speaking of people living here in the Great Lakes. I am very aware of the fact that we are three white people sitting up on this stage talking about a place that's been, you know, home to indigenous people for thousands of years. How good of a job are we doing at listening to indigenous voices? And how do we do better? That's a really important question, and not just indigenous people, but also African-Americans and Hispanic people who live here as well. Um, I, I will never forget meeting um, a teacher in, in inner city Milwaukee who told me that her students, who were 100% black, um, lived, many of them lived within half a mile of Lake Michigan, and not one of them had ever seen Lake Michigan. They could not get across the highway along the waterfront. And the other side of the highway were the, were the expensive houses. And they just could not get into that neighborhood. Um, I spent some time in Gary, Indiana, and um, same situation there. But there are people very actively introducing the Great Lakes and nature in general to their, their children and their students and are trying to make a difference, but they're up against a, a challenge that we don't have to deal with yet, and that, that is that the water is terribly polluted, and it's ugly down there, and nobody really wants to be there. Um, and that's another issue, and that's, that's something that I worry about, is how do we ensure that the remaining parts of the Great Lakes that are still pretty clean and are beautiful stay that way, because once we lose that, then we lose public support. 
Um, Maumee Bay is the worst example that I've encountered where um, this place that was a, you know, it was a recreation center of the Midwest throughout the first half of the 20th century. Um, now, algae blooms to the horizon and, um, you know, toxic algae. Uh, um, the Lake Erie waterkeeper told me that she did, and Dave and I were talking about this earlier, she did hundreds of presentations a year to every kind of group of people and all through the Maumee Basin area, and um, Toledo is the, the biggest community there. Um, and she always ended her presentation by asking, how many of you here have swum in Maumee Bay, have walked the beach, have fished in it, or have boated on it? And she said, no matter where she goes, no matter what the demographic, young people, old people, rich people, poor people, white people, black people, 5% raise their hands, 5%. I'm sure if we ask that question of you, there might be 5% who don't raise their hands. And that's because they, they have, they don't, they've lost hope down there. They do not believe that it can, it can be reversed, although science has shown that it can be, if we're determined enough. Your question is really important, as Jerry said. How well are we doing in engaging with the Aboriginal peoples, Indigenous peoples? Not well enough by any means. It's uh, instructive to me that the tribes have been out front in the fight against both Nestle's water taking and also Line 5. They're exercising their treaty rights, which are tremendously important in trying to protect um, our so-called our environment, it's their environment, and their traditional way of life. So we can do a lot more. I think we're learning a lot from them now. There's slowly being integrated into environmental policy making something of traditional ecological knowledge, which is a tribal heritage that's starting to be, become recognized finally by the so-called Europeans that we, we represent. And I think that um, in the next 50 years, that's, going, that's kind of the un, unanticipated change we're going to see is much more strength and recognition of tribal uh, rights and their, their ethic that can influence us to do better. That's what I'm wondering. Should we do more than just listen to the voices? Should, should they have some, you know, more authority at this point? Yeah, I would welcome them being uh, co-signers of the Boundary Waters Treaty between the U.S. and Canada, co-signers of the Great Lakes Water Quality Agreement, which is currently just U.S. and Canada. These are sovereign nations that have um, traditions and laws that we should recognize and stewardship uh, responsibilities and ethics. Any suggestions for the crowd here tonight on books to read and authors to I'm listen to? I'm glad you to. asked that question. Um, <laughs> I have two, well, there's actually four Great Lakes books I would recommend. One is by an eco-poet friend of mine named Alison Swan. She edited an anthology of oh, essays by women writers on the Great Lakes. It's called Freshwater, Women Writing on the Great Lakes. There's a new book by Lynn Easley, who's a professor at Western Michigan University and an environmental historian, is called The Accidental Reef, which is about literally looking at the Great Lakes from the bottom up, bottom of the St. Clair River. There's also um, Dan Egan's book, which I, I've forgotten the title. I think it's The, the Death, and Death and Life of the Great Lakes, which is a really excellent summary of the past and the future of the Great Lakes. And then um, uh, there was one other book. Well, I may, I'll just say The Living Great Lakes. You've got to read that. And I wanted to mention that's um, 
I learned during this media tour that I've had with Jerry, the mini media tour, that next year is the 20th anniversary year of his Living Great Lakes, and there's going to be a new edition with a new introduction, right? We hope so. Yeah, yeah. we're working on it. So we're working on it. You know, I don't have the titles and authors' names at my fingertips, but there are a number of really informative and interesting books about the Great Lakes written from the Native American perspective by Native American authors. Um, there's one that was published um, by, I think, the University of Minnesota that it pairs a tribal um, storyteller with a white geologist, and they talk about the, the geology of the Great Lakes Basin tied in with the, myth, the Native American mythology. And it's a fascinating combination. You get these two very distinct worldviews blending together in a really interesting way. And the authors insert themselves into the story, talk about their own experience and the experiences of their families. I'm really sorry I can't remember the title of that, but I'm sure you can find it with a little bit of Googling. And there are others as well. Um, but again, you'll have to hunt them down because my memory's shot. I'd be happy to encourage everyone here to also uh, read the Traverse City Record Eagle because there is a full-time reporter there who covers indigenous affairs who is an indigenous woman, Sierra Clark. Watch for her byline. So, you know, we've, we've spent a little bit of time here talking about some scary things about the Great Lakes, but not everything about it's scary, you know. Um, Despite the challenges, it's, you know, it's 20% of the world's sur surface water. It's beautiful. It's clear. You can walk out into the bay now and see your feet. And there are not every lake in Michigan can you say that. Um, so given what we have, given the absolute majesty of the Great Lakes and all that they contain and all of the promise that they offer, what's our responsibility? at this point, you know, to, to preserve them, to protect them, and how do we do that rather than just talking about it? Like, what are, what are the action items that we can take? Well, we have to be ferocious. We have to defend, defend them with everything we've got. They are literally ours. <laughs> Legally, ethically, in every sense, those lakes are ours, and we can't let anybody ruin them and destroy them or steal them. I say get active. Hit the streets if you have to. Definitely vote your hearts out and don't take it sitting down. I think the biggest challenge that, that the, the entire world is facing is not only pollution and, and land and water misuse but is, is apathy, indifference. I think we have a huge problem with that that's growing because so few people are now part of this world. We, the majority of population is, is urban and the majority of the population is a lot more interested in media and their devices and shopping than they are in the natural world. So we have to, those of us who do care, have to stand even stronger and taller and get a little louder. Right. Couldn't agree more. I think I'm supposed to say right now, well, you know, turn off the water while you're brushing your teeth, but I'm not going to say things like that. We all know those cliches. I think the first thing to do is get out in the lakes more often and be more inspired to, to defend them. I wish I had 
put a sticky note in the right part of your book or so I could read a good quote on that, that front. But Jerry's wisdom to me, a lot of it is about um, finding your spot in nature and how that can inspire you to be more of a steward. So my first advice is, you know, go to the lake tomorrow, go to the bay, for sure. Any favorite spots that you want to recommend to the crown? Uh, Clinch Park. Yeah, Clinch Park's, you know, that's, that's a great one. Uh, uh, many, 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 many. There's, um, I'm astonished at how many amazing, beautiful places there are still in the Great Lakes. Many of them seem really like they haven't changed in 400 years. Um, the North Channel of Georgian Bay is astonishing. If any of you are familiar with the group of seven artists, the Canadian artists who were amazing, really influential landscape artists of the early to mid um, 20th century, they would take regular trips to, to Georgian Bay and the North Channel um, by, by train from Toronto. They'd load a, their camping equipment and their art supplies into these boxcars and go up and, and make art and party all summer. And they created some amazing, beautiful images of the Great Lakes that are very iconic. You'll, you'll find them all over. But what's strange is you can find the very places that they painted 100 years ago, and they don't look any different. These little islands, there are hundreds of small islands, and very few of them have, have cottages on them. Um, the Thousand Islands area of, of the St. Lawrence is kind of similar in the number of islands, but they're all covered with cottages. The North Channel isn't. Almost everywhere on Lake Superior. I mean, I, I'm just amazed at how much of Lake Superior remains beautiful and pristine. Although, again, we have things to worry about. The water is warming there faster than, or as fast at least, as any large body of fresh water in the world. And we're starting to see some consequences. I was there a couple weeks ago on a stretch of Lake Michigan Beach of Lake Superior that is undeveloped. Um, for miles and miles, we spent days on the beach and never saw another human, as far as you could see, down the shore, either direction. And this is a place we've been going to for decades, and for the first time, we saw algae on the bottom. Um, about five feet out from shore, just outside of the breaker zone, and extending another 10 feet was this thin layer of green algae covering all those beautiful lakes, Lake Superior stones. That's absolutely a consequence of warming water. And it's happening now in, in all the bays in Lake Superior, and now as well as the open water. So there are things to worry about, but there are still these beautiful places. And I could go on. I mean, there's beautiful places on Lake Erie as well. The islands are fascinating. And um, Long Point uh, off the Canadian shore, the Ontario shore, and Lake Ontario has some gorgeous places as well. So, and Lake Michigan, my favorite. One thing that comes to mind that people can do is, um, educate those from outside of our region about the Great Lakes. I first heard about this in Jerry's book, The Windward Shore, but there was a, um, a teaching aid that was handed out to millions of students across the United States that talked about whales in the Great Lakes. And <laughs> I have since found that on the Traverse City Tourism website, they talk about how every year there's several tourists that walk in and want to know where the whale watch cruises are. <laughs> so we might want to teach our fellow citizens of the United States and Canada more about the Great Lakes and what fresh water is. Um, that, so that would be a good 
task for it's all of us. It's sorely needed. There was a case that was reported in the newspapers 20 years ago or so. A young man was out in a small boat off the, near Chicago, and offshore wind, as of summer winds tend to be down there, blew him out into Lake Michigan, and in a very small boat, like a 14-foot skiff. And he was out there for two or three days before he was rescued. And when they hauled him in, he was almost dead from dehydration. And <laughs> you, <laughs> it's, it's as bad as you think. <laughs> the, the Coast Guardsman said, well, why didn't you just drink the water? And he said, I thought it was salt. That's painful. <laughs> so, uh, we've talked about your, your new books. Uh, how about your next projects? Things that you're looking forward to doing. I, I can't fathom that either of you are ready to rest on your laurels. I'm going to do the Great Lakes Whale Watching Guide. That's my next book. <laughs> we should co-write that. Yeah. yeah that's good. Well, you know, I've been, for many years, I've been collecting um, the writings of of people from the very beginnings of European exploration in the Great Lakes that strike me as, as really interesting and important and, and vivid. I'm always looking for vivid writing that paints a picture of the place. And I'd like to do an anthology of those writings, like 400 years of writing up to the present time from every point of view, people of every kind and what they have felt and seen and remembered about the lakes. Um, if, if it's as, as interesting as I think it'll be, it'll make a really interesting portrait of the lakes. Well, I'm done writing about environmental policy. I'm done with that. So the next projects are going to be more, I think, uh, you know, free writing about the Great Lakes. My favorite book that I've written is one that nobody really has read. It's, uh, I self-published it. It's called Last Summer on Lake Huron. It's about living on a lake, a great lake for just a few months, and it was, to me, that was, that was, thank you, thank you. Um, so that more of that kind of book, more of the personal reflections. All right, and how about uh, this is potentially the most controversial question of the night. What's your favorite great lake, and why? It's like asking what's our favorite child. Let's see, Nick and Aaron, they're both up there, and... And my grand, I think it's my grandchild, actually. Yeah. Um, boy, that's a time. We're asked that all the time, you know. We are asked that a lot. And I honestly can't answer it right off the, the bat because my feelings change for them. It's, for me, it's between Michigan and Superior. Um, I've spent a lot of time in both, and I think probably it's going to be Superior because um, it's so moody, you know. I, re I really like that. And rugged, and it's still the last really wild country in the, in the middle of the continent, and um, we need, to, need that. Lake Champlain. <laughs> the sixth grade. The sixth grade, like, yeah. Well, I, I'm, I root for Lake Huron because of that experience I had living there. It's sort of the, that lake doesn't get no respect, really. Lake Michigan has always been, to me, the friendly lake because I've gone there many times over the years. Lake Superior is kind of the majestic, if sometimes forbidding, Crown Jewel, and you know, Erie is what Erie is, and Ontario is what Ontario is. But Huron is one that we don't really think about. Um, you know, Huron is 
one of the least, after Superior, it's the least populated shoreline, and it's, it's pretty wild as well. And it's uh, the sunrise over Lake Huron are fantastic. Almost as good as the sunsets over Lake Michigan, but you know, overall, Lake Huron's my favorite. You know, if I can in, in, insert um, what you said about Lake Ontario brings to mind that um, this water basin is so enormous. It's such a huge distance from Duluth to the St. Lawrence River in Kingston, Ontario. Um, we forget how big it is, but when you're over on Lake Ontario and the community's there and talking to people, and you ask them what they think about Lake Superior and Lake Michigan, many of them have no idea. They're as ignorant of, of it as people in California are of us, or in New York, many of them. And the same with us. We, many of us, don't really understand Lake Ontario because we haven't been there. And it's a long haul over there. So that's remarkable. That tells you a little bit about how big this, this basin is. It's bigger than France, right? Well, thank you very much. Would uh, either of you gentlemen like to perhaps read a passage or two from your new books? I'll try. I, I wish I had three hands. Um, but this, this, is, this is called Night Watch on the Malabar. Um, and the, Mal, the Malabar was the 12th ship that um, I helped crew from Traverse City to Bar Harbor, Maine, um, and became the, the um, storytelling device in the Living Great Lakes. For a long time I had the wrong idea about nature. Let me start over. For a long time I had the wrong idea about adventure. I thought you had to risk your life. I thought you had to travel to distant places and put yourself in difficult situations. Now I know that ordinary moments can be adventures too. Lately I've been thinking about a moment that occurred one night in the Straits of Mackinac. It wasn't exactly an ordinary experience for me. It was the first night of a month-long journey to deliver a two-masted schooner from Grand Traverse Bay on Lake Michigan to Bar Harbor, Maine on the Atlantic. There were many rowdy adventures ahead, which makes it a little surprising to me that after 20 years, so many of the quiet moments remain vivid in my memory. We had just passed beneath the Mackinac Bridge and were approaching the low, dark presence of Bablo Island. Ahead was open Lake Huron, a black vastness stretching to the horizon. The night was cool, the wind still, and the Milky Way sprayed across the sky. It was the deep part of the night when the stars are at their brightest. I liked night watch. Often only the captain, Hayu Nuttle, and I were on deck, while the three other men on the crew slept below in their cabins. Many nights we stood together for hours at the helm and talked, or rather, Hayo talked and I listened, for he was a natural storyteller and had a mind that veered in unpredictable and fascinating directions. But at some point, we always separated, one of us remaining at the helm and the other going forward to the bow to watch for other vessels. Those hours were some of the most enjoyable of the journey. Being on the water was part of it, of course, but there were deeper satisfactions as well. One was simply, <clears throat> one was simply being in motion, the boat cutting resolutely through the night. Probably it had a lot to do also with seeing new places or old places from a new perspective. And it was exhilarating to be in the Straits of Mackinac, that crossroads of North American history and geography. For years I had been studying our mistreatment of the Great Lakes and of the native people whose lives and cultures had been entwined with them for millennia and had grown disheartened. 
But here was a place that seemed, under the moonlight at least, to have changed little over the centuries. Hours had gone by without much happening, but suddenly there came a moment, a moment of radiance. Nothing had changed, yet everything had changed. It was I who had changed, I think. Suddenly I was seeing the world as it is, not through my usual lens. I saw, as if for the first time, that the lake in every direction around me was mirror smooth and bright with stars. And when I turned to look toward the stern, I was startled to see a trail of moonlight stretching behind us all the way to the Mackinac Bridge. The bridge arched in a spray of lights across the straits, and above it was a gibbous moon casting its arrow of light onto the water. A moment can swell to fill a bigger space. I wanted to stop the boat and let the moment fill me too. I wanted time itself to stop. I needed the entire night, my entire life, to think about what I was seeing. Already I knew it would remain for me as long as I lived. I want to read from the same book, Jerry's book. Um, it's so good, it's so good. Um, from up north in Michigan. It says, most of us now understand a truth that was hidden for decades. Our lakes and rivers are owned by everyone, and it is within our power to do whatever is necessary to protect them from those who would use them carelessly and selfishly. I suspect many of us long ago intuited the idea of common ownership, although we might be more comfortable thinking of ourselves not as owners, but custodians. The Great Lakes are too big to be owned. They remain the last great wilderness of the Middle Continent, unsettled, uncultivated, vast. Every effort to possess or tame them has always been defeated. Here's a bit of wisdom I sensed that night when Lake Michigan seemed determined to tear Clinch Park apart, stone by stone. We are puny. We are temporary. We can talk until our voices crack, but the wind and water will always speak louder. I like that. And that's just how easily consumable the book is. It's just a delight. You can pick it up and really open it anywhere. Now, uh, it's time to uh, welcome U.S. Senator Debbie Stabenow to the stage. She uh, made history in 2000 when she became the first woman from Michigan elected to the U.S. Senate. Uh, shortly after she took office, one of her first bills passed into law. It was a ban on oil and gas drilling in the Great Lakes. She wrote the Great Lakes Restoration Initiative, which helps Michigan communities improve the quality of their water and restore wildlife habitats. She has also secured federal funding to clean up our waterways, fight invasive species, and to modernize the Sioux Locks. Today, she is co-chair of the U.S. Senate's bipartisan Great Lakes Task Force, and one of the Senate's biggest champions for protecting the Great Lakes and our waterways. My goodness well thank you uh, you know i originally started tonight just to come i was going out, we were going to go out to dinner with bill milliken my great friend bill milliken over here give bill a round of applause and the and 
And Bill said to me, there's this great program going on on your very favorite topic, the Great Lakes. So I started to come just to listen. So, but I'm, I'm glad to be able to participate, so. Anything that you've heard this evening you'd like to weigh in on? Oh my gosh, everything. <laughs> Let me first start from, uh, to assure you, they are not taking our water, and I'm just letting you know that right now. <laughs> And, and I'm not just saying that. They are not taking our water over my dead body. And I mean, they, and I've actually had conversations. And, you know, when we, when I was back in the state Senate, um, I first started working on the Great Lakes Compact idea and the, and, the, and the whole idea of giving the states with Canada the authority to make decisions on the water. And the truth is that they may try I mean, my uh, now colleague, good friend, Mark Kelly, who's a new member from uh, Arizona. First time I talked to Mark, and I'm supporting him, and he's running for office, and he goes, by the way, you know, we have such challenges of water and so on. We're thinking of a pipeline. I said, whoa, stop it right here. <laughs> There's no way that you're going to get our water. And in the end, this is, not a, this is a political fight. So I just want to let you know, I mean, it will be up to us um, to make sure that that does not happen. I'm, as chair of the Agriculture Committee, I work frequently with people in California who talk about a horrible situation. Well, I've always said uh, we have more diversity of crops, but any state, any state but California, which is true, more diversity of crops. But now I'm starting to say we have the most diversity of crops with water. <laughs> Because the truth is, they've got a mess up there. It's horrible between the droughts and the fires and so on. But there's no way, there's no way we will let them get that water. So at some point, you know, th this becomes something where the, the, eight, the states gather. We have a bipartisan Great Lakes caucus in the House and the Senate. And if it ever really started to happen, we would organize. And there is no way. So I just want to let you know that, that you know, I tell people, you want our water, move to Michigan. That's the only way you're going to get it. Speaking of people moving to Michigan, yes. we've, you know, this whole Great Lakes region has been identified as what they're calling a, a climate haven. Although one author I spoke to called it a, a climate oasis. And I, I liked that a little better. Haven almost gives you the idea that um, there won't be any negative effects here, which we know is inaccurate. So how do we prepare for those people who are going to move here? Because we've got all the water. Well, there's a, first of all, let me back up and, and talk about impacts, because we actually are being impacted. And you're right, though. People are going to be coming here. Uh, people only half joke that we will be the East Coast. <laughs> and let's, let's certainly hope that... That's not within our lifetimes or our children or grandchildren or, or great-grandchildren. Um, but, and so when, if people want to come, that's fine. I mean, there's a whole range of issues. We are dealing with this. You are dealing with this in Grand Traverse. There's a whole range of things from housing to transportation, all kinds of things that we, we deal with when people come in. Um, so we'll have to deal with that. What I am most concerned about and focused on right now are the impacts of climate on the Great Lakes, because the, um, the Great Lakes now, according to a U of M study, are growing 
are getting hotter, are heating up faster than the oceans. The Great Lakes are heating up faster than the oceans. And Lake Superior is one of the five fastest heating, you know, warming lakes in the world. So I, we're going to lose cold water fishing. I, and when, Jerry, when you're talking about it, I was thinking as you were talking about what you've seen, the change in the algae in Lake Superior and so on. You know, I've lived in Michigan my whole life and um, growing up in Clare and coming up here all the time. And uh, when we would go to the UP and go to Lake Superior, there was maybe one day you could swim in Lake Superior, maybe, right? Maybe, you know, with a wetsuit. I mean, it was, you couldn't swim in Lake Superior, you know. I, last time I was up there, they're kayaking on Lake Superior. They're swimming. I was up there in July. They're swimming in Lake Superior. And now the people that are up there love it. They think this is great. I was going out in a boat and doing a survey with the Coast Guard, and I was horrified, actually, because it's like, no, no, no. <laughs> You're not supposed to be able to swim in, the, in Lake Superior. And, but they're now doing kayaking tours and so on. So, um, and we know what that means for us from the algae blooms, which started in Lake Erie down in, in Toledo and all of, of that horror, um, to the erosion and the houses on the cliffs fall in the water, um, to the invasive species, to the additional things happening and so on. So. Um, so what we are doing, and I just want to give one good, and there's, there's actually good things in terms of resources happening, even though it t it's going to take a long time and a lot of strategies to really do what we need to do. But we just passed something called the Inflation Reduction Act that has the largest investment in addressing climate. No joke a 40% reduction in the next eight years, and my ag committee, I wrote the agriculture and forestry provisions. And this is really important, because even though we gotta get off of fossil fuels, I mean, off of fossil fuels, or we're never gonna be able to deal with this, but the other piece of this is how we manage our land. And you know, how we farm, how we manage our land, how we protect our forests and sustainable forestry. And as we know, you wanna take carbon out of the air, plant a tree. You wanna take a lot of carbon out of the air, plant a lot of trees, because that's all it is, is carbon. So I just mentioned that, it, I don't wanna go on and on on this, but the, as we are looking at, and people will come here because it will be the place that has the water and so on. But we have serious threats because of the climate. Serious threats we have to deal with. Um, and uh, so it's an all hands on deck moment for us right now. Uh, both individually, policy wise, working with tribes, so important. We've been, our uh, regional conservation partnership that I put in the Farm Bill is tribes and the state and the community and the federal government working together. There's just, there's a lot to do because we, it's coming right at us. And we can do things and we will do things and we're already doing things, but we've got a lot more to do. And I guess to be maybe greedy for climate legislation, what's next? Well, I think right now it's a matter of implementing, first of all, what we, we've done. And there's various pieces. We have taken the normal conservation programs of water, soil, 
dealing with methane and farms and so on, and like tripled down on the amount of resources available. So it's getting um, our, our farmers activated, getting our foresters activated, doing something called cover crops. When you're done with the planting, you do another crop on top of it, which holds the soil in place, holds the fertilizer in place, stops the runoff into the water, but also takes carbon out of the ground because it's growing something. So there's all kinds of things that sound like, eh, what's that, that are really big deals. Um, and so what we've also got the Great Lakes Restoration Initiative, which I authored back in 2010, which is the largest fund now for individual projects, different projects. We have a lot of them up here. We have 6,500 projects we've done since then in the Great Lakes. But so it's like implementing that. How do we, you know, how do we strategize with local communities, with folks here um, on using the resources that we have? Because there's multiple things that we've actually funded. In fact, in the last 18 months, we have done more around uh, uh, water, Great Lakes, climate in a number of different pots. So it's right now it's operationalizing it. That's what I'm focused on. It's not getting the resources. We finally have the resources. Now it's how do we make sure we are actively doing what we need to do. Do you guys have any questions for the senator? I just have a comment about the Great Lakes Restoration Initiative. Um, it's an uh, example of how it's working is here in the community. The, I know the Watershed Center of Grand Traverse Bay has been working with partners to restore Kids Creek, which is one of the water bodies that tra traverses Traverse City. And it's a, a beautiful project that has water quality benefits, but also I think benefits aesthetically and for uh, peace of mind. So it's a, it's a wonderful example of what your initiative is doing. Thank you. That's great. That's great. I have a question. Um, the Great Lakes Legislative Caucus is a, a bipartisan group of senators and representatives from the Great Lakes states who get together once a year? No, we get together. Um, it's really sort of as needed. We'll bring in the Army Corps on things. We, mm -hmm. I organized a trip over to um, Illinois River to, look to, uh, to discuss Asian carp, mm -hmm. the big fish that keeps me up at night a lot trying to stop it from coming in the Great Lakes. So we organize a trip over there. We, we kind of get together as needed, mm -hmm. you know, to, to, and a lot of it is um, either pushing one of the agencies, advocating, um, you know, pushing for dollars in the budget, that okay. kind of thing. Well, the question I would like to ask is, um, I'm struck by how supportive that the group is of Great Lakes issues, regardless of political leanings. Have you seen a change in partisan opinions about the Great Lakes in your career? I think um, anyone that represents the Great Lakes, you know, has a certain bond uh, with this. Um, uh, Rob Portman from Ohio co-chairs our caucus with me. I'm going to really hate to see him leave on the Great Lakes. He's just been terrific. And um, but um, what's in, it's interesting where it breaks down because in general we are all together. Um, when it comes to really advocating for resources, it has become harder to get our Republican colleagues to actually sign letters on that. It's best become just sort of spending money on this. But, I mean, we've held it together, 
you know, but it, that's sort of the one area where when we talk about advocating for the, the next year's Great Lake Restoration Initiative, we don't get everybody always to sign with a specific number, although they will, they will in general be supportive. Um, I think the challenge for us, and you were talking about it earlier, is just educating others in the country, right? I mean, we're 20% of the world's freshwater, we're 95% of the country's freshwater. I'll never forget um, when I was first um, elected and there was, we put together an event actually over on Lake Michigan with some colleagues, Senate colleagues, and um, the leader at the time, um, Senator Daschle, um, was a runner and he went out to run along Lake Michigan and came back and he said to me, Debbie, you can't see the other side. <laughs> and that's why we call it the Great Lakes. You can't see the other side. And so I thought, wow. <laughs> <laughs> and so, but it's, you know, people think it's like great lakes, but they're like big lakes. You know, you can see the other side, you know. So, um, and the, so it is, there's a constant education that has to go on. And, by the way, I just have to say, the Great Lakes Restoration Initiative, which has been a fund to allow us to do a lot of things since 2010, individual projects, um, when President Trump came in, his first budget zeroed it out because he said it was a local issue. So I went over to Lake Huron and did a video pointing at Canada and did this whole thing and sent it to him. You know, this is, and in, in, we talked about all of this. But that was the moment at which all the members, both parties, came together and rallied and said, you know, no, this is ridiculous. But they tried the first year to zero it out didn't make it. The second year to zero it out. Third year, 90%. They tried to cut 90%. Um, but we were able to hold them off every year because we had everybody, you know, saying, no, this is, this is ridiculous, you know. I actually know a lot of people who put some of that money to good use in this area. There's a few in this room. Um, <laughs> what's the likelihood of seeing the Great Lakes Restoration Initiative increase funding even more? It's going to increase. In fact, uh, Senator Portman and I uh, put in a five-year increase. So it's every year now. It's going to, I think we're at $350 million going to $375. But it's, it is going to go up to $475 million over, over the next three years. So... All right, now it's time for the Q&A. And uh, we will begin with a virtual question. And uh, if you're watching from home via our live stream, and if you want to ask our esteemed guests a question, please email them to events at nwstc.org. And the National Writers Series will try to include them in tonight's event. We're going to start our Q&A session tonight with a special question uh, from a member of our virtual audience. Uh, Carl Clockers will read it to us. Hi, everybody. Uh, this question comes from Lana Pollock. She's the former US co-chair of the International Joint Commission 
the binational treaty organization that advises and supports the governments of the United States and Canada in protecting and managing their shared waters across the entire continental boundary. Her question, climate change will create more demands for fresh water and will very likely make the Great Lakes region, especially Michigan, a likely climate refuge for people who will find it difficult, if not impossible, to continue living in water-scarce areas. What policies and investments should be made now in preparation for Michigan and our neighbors, including Ontario, becoming major areas of climate refuge? That sounds like a policy question, Dave. Senator Stavenon does policy. Yeah. <laughs> well, that, let me first jump in and say if Lana's listening. Hello, Lana. Lana is, uh, was a wonderful state senator. She was my seatmate in the state senate uh, a number of years ago and went on to do such uh, wonderful work on the Joint Commission. And, um, you know, I think that's a really good question. And, Jay, you were sort of talking about that, what happens when folks um, come here. And I, I think we've got to really put our collective heads together on what that means um, as people come to Michigan. Um, by the way, people are coming to our country. When we talk about the southern border and Central America, and so, so much of what's happening is people are unable to plant food anymore. They're starving because of what's happening on the weather in their countries. And we're seeing, and we're seeing this around the world now, uh, more and more areas where people aren't going to be able to plant food and are going to be moving, already moving. Um, so I think we've got work to do together to sort of figure out what that means. Um, although I do kind of like the idea of putting up a border, a wall, Jerry, I think had great appeal to me when you said it. So, but I, I think it's going to take some real thought on all of us, really. Anyone out there have a question? Over here. I apologize in ahead for bringing up a different water resource, but it's all, all connected. Michigan is among the states with the largest number of natural inland lakes, and Michigan's inland lakes rank among the top three or four states in the nation in terms of water quality. Yet Michigan's inland lake management approach continues to be focused on restoration rather than on protection and preservation. What are your thoughts about the need to protect Michigan's high quality inland lakes relative to the overshadowing emphasis on the Great Lakes? And secondly, what are your suggestions to affect change toward a protective lakes management approach for Michigan's inland lakes? Thank you. That's a pretty well-crafted question. Yes. Um, it's a great question. You know, I lived in Minnesota for a while, which calls itself the land of 10,000 lakes, and Michigan is also a land of 10,000 lakes. I think it's 11,000 some. So it's a huge resource that needs to be protected. And I don't see protection of inland lakes as being shortchanged in favor in light of the Great Lakes, but I do think we have the same hard choices to make with inland lakes that we do with the, the Great Lakes. Um, you mentioned protecting high quality waters. Well, we don't do that with the Great Lakes either. We have an areas of concern program in the Great Lakes that's to clean up the mess 
we don't have an area of prevention program to keep the high quality waters safe, and we should do something like that with inland lakes. Um, you know, there's, there's so many threats that we need to deal with for inland lakes. One of those is uh, the fact that Michigan is the only state without a sanitary code, so you have septic systems that are basically failing and discharging waste into the inland lakes. Uh, estimated 27% of our septic systems in the state are failing, so, um, and a lot of lakes are seeing degraded water quality, some of them in our, our area. We need to have a statewide consistent code that will require uh, septic systems to be inspected and pumped out. It's probably the only place in America where you get applause for better toilets, huh? <laughs> Um, we care about our water here. Right. Um, I, would be, I would welcome more ideas about what we could do for inland lakes. I, I think um, they, you're right, they deserve more attention than they, they get. But, um, and they are tremendous tourism assets, too. I'm sorry, I didn't want to interrupt. No, I'm, I'm done. Oh, okay, okay. Um, I did want to jump in and, and just say, because it's, this is really important. And by the way, in Michigan, you're never more than six miles from a body of water. So, you know, it, rivers, inland lakes, Great Lakes, and so on. One of the things about the Great Lakes Restoration Initiative is that it's not just specifically for the Great Lakes. Uh, when you were talking about the areas of concern, the, the inland lakes, we have a number of inland lakes um, that have been, because of the water quality, you can't swim, you can't, uh, can't boat, there's been a lot of pollution and so on. We have areas of concern that we have been cleaning up. And I should mention that in the infrastructure bill, another area where we actually added um, $1 billion for Great Lakes infrastructure. Rob Portman and I were able to get that in there. And it will, we have 11 lakes that are considered, or rivers, considered areas of concern now. And that's going to be able to clean up nine of the, nine of the 11. So we're going to be able to make a major, we couldn't quite get the full 11, but we got nine of the 11 in terms of, of funding. But um, things like opening up rivers around Michigan, like taking out the dams, Boardman Dam, taking out other dams. So there's, from a fishery standpoint, there's the capacity. Um, for f flow, flowing through on, on fisheries and so on. But um, I guess I would say that what Dave was saying on the sewer systems and the, I think we have a lot of issues that relate to standards and what's happening and what's flowing into the water in our, our inland lakes. And a piece of that does go back to agriculture again, which is very important, the, the runoff issues. And there's a lot of work that's being done, but, um, and our farmers are doing a lot of good work, but there's additional funding now that's gonna be able to help them to do bumper steps and managing things and you know all, all these things that deal with um, what's happening in terms of uh, nitrates and so on, um, uh, methane, all of this, that relates to the water quality as well. So agriculture is a really important piece of solving this, I think. Next question. Got a gentleman over here. A 
Cuba and Israel probably wouldn't exist without desalinization plants. What's holding the uh, West Coast back from that? I have no idea. That's a great question. Um, I don't know if someone here can share any information. Yes. I've learned something new tonight. I'm going to go back and ask folks uh, from California. I was not aware of that. How about up top in the, yes. the balcony? Yeah, Hap right from Shalloway, Michigan, with a question. Um, Shalloway is kind of under attack. The beautiful Lake Shalloway used to be one of the 10 best sailing lakes in the country. And, you know, we have overdevelopment uh, attempts to turn it more into a resort lake. And yet out on the Great Lakes itself, you know, and anybody that's lived in Shalvey knows about, quote, the cement plant, which, uh, you know, I, I asked this question, you know, what can we do about protecting not only the Great Lakes, but also these, you know, inland lakes like Lake Shalvey? And this was a Democratic candidate who answered. He said, well, that's a local issue. What's your reaction to that? It's not a local issue in my book. I mean, I, I, I mean I'm not sure exactly the specifics of what should happen, but um, our, first of all, our water doesn't stay in one place. And, it, and it's, you know, it's a, I don't, I don't understand. I wouldn't agree with the idea that it's a local issue, unless it relates to particular permitting or what, I, I, I don't know. I'm not, you know, that's a, that's a good question. I don't know. Okay, um, next question. There's a fellow right here. Wayne Workman from Traverse City. And my question for the panel is, are you aware of the proposal to build a rocket launching site just west of Marquette that will launch rockets over Lake Superior into low Earth orbit? Um, and the potential disastrous outcome if that ever gets constructed. I read about it. I thought it was an April Fool's joke. I know the spot, that, that house, it's, it's this incredible mansion on the shore of Lake Superior, and the gentleman who's proposing that bought it and a huge tract of land and, and waterfront, this really beautiful rocky shoreline of Lake Superior. Um, my understanding is that he's not getting much support from his neighbors um, <laughs> for obvious reasons. Um, there might be somebody in the audience who knows a lot about this. Wasn't the idea that the old Wurtsmith Air Force Base was also being considered? Mm -hmm. Okay. Right. Oh, phase one. Rich Vanderveen lives in Marquette. Do you know anything about that, Rich? I think you're here. Oh, I guess he's not. He does know about it. 
I'm not it's surprised. certainly not come to my attention in terms of requesting any federal support. I can say that. I mean, there have been various proposals when, um, you know, when uh, the base closed up, you know, in Marquette area, that was a real blow to everybody, and they've been redeveloping it. There's a whole small business effort. There's a, a lot of things that have gone on the base. I'm sure you're aware, um, and. There's always people, you know, talking about different kind of ideas. It's not come to my attention, though, to, you know, anything. I see. Well, we'll go back, and I will put this on my list to follow up on, because I have not been asked to support anything. I've not been asked by any of the local elected officials. It doesn't strike me as something that there'd be a lot of support to do, but I'll go back and check. Okay, we've got uh, time for two more questions. We're gonna do one online real quick. Uh, this question is from uh, Bridget. She's asking, people in Northern Michigan are concerned about the possible expansion of Camp Grayling. What are your guys' thoughts on that? I guess I'm not sure you know, I'd love to have a, please follow up with us about what your concerns are. Uh, Camp Grayling is a really important um, training. It is right now the largest training facility for the National Guard east of the Mississippi. Um, actually, I was just up there um, uh, with folks. They have a big PFAS problem, by the way. They do. In the lake, yes, uh, which is a whole other thing. We can go around our bases and so on and, and all the challenges on on the horrors of PFAS. Um, but I was not aware of expanding. It's, it's a large footprint already, um, and they do a tremendous amount of training there and also in Alpena that is a combat readiness center that does really important training for our first responders as well as the Guard and so on, and they work with Selfridge, which is our only active Air Force base left in Michigan, really important in northern uh, uh, Macomb County, um, but I was not aware of, you know, they're talking about expanding the the, the landmass there, um, and so I'd be happy to have you follow up. They would have to come to us because we would, federal government would be funding that. So, um, but, but you know, happy. They want to use state land to expand Camp, Camp Grayling, okay. Well, that's, they haven't asked us about, that would be federal government purchasing that because the federal government is, you know, f helps fund all of that. So, so I'm not sure what the concerns would be from the residents either, exactly where it is. So, but happy to hear more about it. Okay, I think we've probably got time for maybe two more. Up top on the balcony. I'm Patrick Cotan from Traverse City, and uh, uh, I, w I was just curious about uh, something that's an integral resource to the Great Lakes, the forests of Michigan, uh, and the other Great Lakes stakes, including um, Ontario, Canada. Uh, Michigan itself has four million acres of public land, much of it is forested. Uh, I was just curious if one of you guys wanted to touch on your thoughts maybe uh, about sustainable forest management in the Great Lakes region uh, and the importance of it. 
I would just say it's very, very important, um, and part of what we have just funded in the climate, what we call climate smart ag and forestry parts of the, the new uh, law that just passed is to focus on uh, sustainable forestry efforts. I mean, we, you know, we have some wonderful forests, and it's not about never, as you know, never cleaning out the brush or never cutting anything. It's about sustainably doing things that keep the forest healthy. And so we have a lot of private forests in Michigan, uh, as well as public, national forests, state forests, uh, private foresters, and it's a matter of really working with them on how best to protect, uh, and protect the forest and do it in a sustainable way. And it's, as you know, very much tied to what's happening on the climate crisis. And so we, we need to be, meet more for us. We need, um, another thing that, that um, Senator Portman and I did in the, the infrastructure bill was add um, a provision to actually uh, plant a billion more trees on our national forests to, you, in terms of you know, dealing with what's happened on the forest fires, but also to address uh, climate. But sustainable forestry is very much uh, on our minds right now. Okay, one more question, and let's go with the lady over here against the wall. Hi, everyone. My name is Ari Makdad. I'm from Traverse City. I have a question for the whole panel. What do you see as the role of art in the conservation and maintenance of the Great Lakes and our waters? Well, legislation and science are crucial for getting information out and making laws that are good for us. Art touches our hearts, and that can convince a lot more people a lot more quickly than facts and figures can. Totally agree with that. And one of the um, initiatives at Flow, we have a program called Art Meets Water, where we sponsor art-related events to inspire people to get involved in the protection of our environment. It's, it's, I think, as Jerry said, it's the stories and the connections to the outdoors that motivate us, not the statistics, but our heart connection. So that's, that's really important. I would just add that as well, and, and not just visual arts, music. Um, you know, when I think about living my whole life in Michigan and what touches me the most, it, it really is related to the arts, to music, to uh, culture. It's, you know, the Great Lakes aren't just some scientific piece of water. It's, our, it's in our DNA. It's who we are. And so um, expressing that in some way uh, through the arts, I think, is a really, really important thing to do. We should have Jerry Dennis be the Great Lakes Poet Laureate for Michigan. What there we think? go. All right. Well, thanks so much for the wonderful questions. We're going to have Anne come back out. Well, I like that idea, Dave. Great Lakes Poet Laureate, Jerry Dennis. Um, so, hey, thanks for coming. What a great discussion. Um, Thanks to the City Opera House staff, Joe back there, Horizon Books. And the best way to thank Jerry and David tonight 
is to buy their book. Um, uh, and Ari, thanks for that question. Yes, Moving Hearts, and you guys both do it in spades. So um, much gratitude for our small but mighty staff, Colleen, Carl, and Cindy. Um, thanks, Jared. Uh, gosh, I'm forgetting one of them. And our loyal volunteers, board members. Um, if you're in here, please take a bow. And um, I don't know if you know this, but proceeds go to our Raising Writers programs. Check out our website. And please come back next month and see Dr. Ben Gilmer. He wrote a real-life medical murder mystery. And Frederick Bachman, author of A Man Called Ove. Um, Jerry, Dave, Sherry, Senator, please take a bow. 